0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
1: Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Leventer. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak to all kinds of entrepreneurs doing amazing things in business and beyond. This is exciting. Today's guest needs absolutely no introduction. He's one of the most respected entrepreneurs in history. It's Ugg Boots founder, Brian Smith. And in this episode of the podcast, Brian shares how he started Ugg with less than $500 and an idea, how he scaled using the right investors, what it was like raising capital before any kind of business software existed, and more. There are some great nuggets of wisdom in this one, but what I really loved about Brian's natural Aussie-style way of telling a great story is his candidness, his honesty, and there are so many great entertaining pieces throughout this whole conversation. So let's get to my very unscripted and unedited, but amazing chat with UG founder, Brian Smith.
0: Well, I was an accountant Australia and after 10 years of studying I graduated and I quit the same day because I just didn't like accounting and I began to drift for a month or so just looking at my buddies trying to figure out what they did and I had no idea what I wanted to do except I just did not want to be a public accountant and it's amazing at the power of words and songs that can can change your life I, I had just discovered an album called Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd and you know one afternoon i you know ripped off the cellophane cover and put it on for the first time and the second song i heard the words tired of lying in the sunshine staying home to watch the rain you are young and life is long and there is time to kill today and i and i just thought oh my god that's exactly describing me and then it went on to say but then one day you find 10 years have got behind you no one told you when to run you missed the starting gun. And that just like, I just had these goosebumps all over my body when I heard that because I, I just thought, oh, my God, I've been running on the spot for 10 years. Th- those simple words of Pink Floyd or you know Roger Waters got me off my butt and, and got me thinking, okay, I am going to take action. and And that was when I was meditating, trying to figure out, you know, what to do. And I I thought all the cool trends are coming out of California. I'm going to go to California and and find the next big thing and bring it back to Australia. So, so isn't it amazing how the words of a song can change the course of your life? So I, I bought a ticket to California and came looking for the next big thing. And I was surfing a lot at Malibu and, and, you know, making a ton of friends, but didn't find the next big thing. And it took about three months and, and one day I was looking at a surf magazine a buddy had brought down for me and and I saw a photograph, some guy had advertised sheepskin boots in this surfer magazine and I got the goosebumps again and I thought, oh, my God, there are no sheepskin boots in California, in America, and one in two Australians had some sort of sheepskin footwear. And I just looked at my buddy and said, hey, Doug, we got to go into business, man. We're going to be instant millionaires, you know. And you, you know how many people say that, and what the result is—it's crazy.
1: Yeah. So, so did Doug end up being your business partner, or was just this an initial conversation that you guys had?
0: Well, we ended up being partners. We we scraped together five hundred bucks between us and bought some samples, mm-hmm. and uh, then we went around to all the shoe. Doug, Doug was going to be the salesman, so he went around to all the shoe stores and came back a month later and no orders and he said brian they, they tell me i'm crazy trying to sell sheepskin in california and you know i understood the logical side of that but the practical thing is australia's climate's identical to california so it wasn't the reason so doug and i pivoted and went after the surf shops we did a tour of them all and and all the surf shop owners are going oh my god that's a fantastic idea i love ugg boots. you know my friends have got them i got them and so that's how Doug and I decided to start in business. Just through a fluke, you know, through my roommate, we, we found some investors who put up 20 grand and we bought 500 pairs of boots into California in, a, in, a, in my little office in San, uh, Santa Monica. We went back on the road to these same surf shops. You know, this time Doug was selling and I was on the road as well. And I remember walking in with all the boots thinking I'm going to get a huge order because they were so stoked, you know, last time I was there. First one goes, oh, Brian, well done, man, but we couldn't sell them in our store because we just sell surfboards and trunks and sandals, but you're going to do great, you know. And this went on over and over and over to every single surf shop in Southern California. And when Doug and I sort of met back in our little, you know, warehouse of boots, uh, we tallied up the orders and it was 28 pairs for the hmm. for the first season of ARG. It was exactly $1,000. And that was like, you know, <laughs> very humbling.
1: Going back to the early days when you were, you know, meditating and trying to figure out what your next step was going to be. Why did you choose California as a marketplace for testing uh, of this product?
0: Because I remembered all the cool trends were coming out of California, like Levi jeans and waterbeds and all the surf brands, you know, and, and because Australia's, you know, whole way of life is very Californian that we had a great affinity for California. And so that was the main reason I just decided California was the, the, the hub. That was where I was going to find the next big thing. Yeah. And was it,
1: you know, it's funny. I just finished a book by, um, Phil Knight. I think he, he might be a colleague of yours, uh, founder of Nike.
0: I know um, exactly.
1: Ca- called, yeah. yeah, called Shoe Dog. And you know he mentions in the book about, you know, this whole movement of footwear moving or it, it, more specifically jogging shoes moving from uh, being sort of a utilitarian item to, to something that, you know, a- athletes actually took seriously and embraced. And then the shoes became more technical. And at yep. the time we started Nike, I think there was only sort of one major running shoe brand and that was Tiger. Do you feel like you were capitalizing on, just a major footwear movement in the 70s as well?
0: Well, it's a really interesting comparison. I didn't capitalize on, I missed all the trends back at that time. You know, Nike was one, and they were Tiger shoes that he was importing from uh, Japan. Mm -hmm. And when I read his book about six months ago, I was staggered to to realize that the first six years' sales of UGG was greater than the first six years combined sales of Nike, and it wasn't until the sport of, of uh, jogging took off that Nike was like it was like okay, who's the best running shoe around? Okay, let's look in the magazines. Oh, Nike. So that's when they they started to take off. And Nike's big competition at that time was Adidas from Europe. So they 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 went head to head. Ugg you know, wasn't even you know a player at that time. The other trend that i noticed at the same time was little company in santa monica california and they were importing these little white kid leather shoes for dance studios and they were trying to advertise to dancers that was reebok reebok reebok, reebok. and and they just happened to be positioned with the best shoe for dancing just just like nike was positioned with the best shoe for running they mm-hmm. got sucked into this vortex of millions of dollars worth of demand because society took off And Reebok, they were positioned as the best little dance shoe when aerobics took off, and they got sucked into this vortex of millions of dollars of sales because of the societal shift. It was many, many years. It was like another 12 to 14 years before UGG, uh, when I created a casual comfort branding position for the boot and got it into USA Today and Oprah, that's when UGG's Vortex happened, and we got sucked into the hundreds of millions of sales. So, so it really, you know, it took a lot of perseverance just to hang in there and and wait for our time.
1: How did you know you were still onto something, even when okay. you had twenty eight pairs of sales in that first year?
0: Yeah. Okay. Th- that's a great question. I'm going to preface it by saying that every entrepreneur must have some level of ignorance before they start, because if they knew everything that was coming, they probably wouldn't get into it. Right. And I was full of ignorance back then. So I, after that 28 pairs the the next season, I, I, uh, started selling out of the back of my van at Malibu and I was going to the swap meets and the street fairs and all that sort of stuff. So it was really grassroots stuff. Doug went and got another job. So now it was all back to me. Mm. And, the sales that next season were about ten thousand yeah. bucks. So the follow, the following year, I decided, okay, I'm going to advertise. So I hired these models and posed them on the beach with the perfect hair and sunset and and clothes and the UGG boots, you know, front and center in the ad. And you know, the sales went to about fifteen thousand the next season. And and each each summer, I'm getting, you know different jobs to stay alive right so the next season I hired better looking models and a more expensive photographer and and ran the ads in in the fall and the sales went to like 25,000 and I couldn't understand what I was doing wrong and I was having a beer with a buddy of mine who owned a surf shop and telling him this situation and he goes oh shut up Brian and he calls out the back to all these little kids who work in the back of the store and says what do you guys think of Uggs and Every one of them just went, "Oh, those Uggs, man, they're so fake." Have you seen those ads? Those models—they can't surf—and mm. instantly I realised I've been sending the wrong message to my target market. You know, when they pointed it out, even I could see how fake these ads were. You know, so I pivoted again and called up a buddy of mine who was running a, a Scholastic surf camp, and and I said, "Pete, you got any young kids who are going to turn pro soon?" And he says, yeah, there's a couple of guys. So he put me in touch with them, Mike Parsons and Ted Robinson. And instead of hiring a photographer, I just took my little Canon sure shot. You know, we we went surfing and I I photographed them walking to the beach and walking from the beach at Black's Beach and Trestles. And these are iconic surf walks in Southern Cal. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ran those ads in October, November, December the next season and the sales went to $200,000.
1: So that was, I mean, that, that was a major leap. You went from 25K in year three to, you're saying $200,000 yeah, in year yeah, four, roughly. just
0: purely because I hit on the right image and that set me up with understanding marketing and advertising and from then on it was much, much easier. But that critical step told me that I knew I was onto something. For three years, I've been blundering along, wondering if i it's going to work, wondering, you know, w- you know, getting summer jobs in construction and, you know, scraping boats in Marina del Rey. And, I mean, I just did everything to survive for three years, wondering the entire time if I really was onto something. And, bam, just when I hit that right formula – it took off. And then I was able to translate that into snowing and snowboarding and skiing. So I got really big in this, those markets. And then back in the Midwest and the East, I had to figure, well, nobody reads Surfer magazines. So what do they do? You know, and I figured out, God, they all play hockey. And so I started advertising in, you know, let's play hockey magazine in Minnesota and different other publications, and and all the mums have to go watch their kids in the rink, you know, it's freezing, so the Uggs were perfect for them, and then the kids change, you know, shoes when they go skating anyway. So it was just a great combination. So I I started getting these young pro skaters and, and advertising them. So the formula worked throughout all of the different categories that I chased.
1: And and so you you mentioned Doug is out by this point. You said he he dropped off after the first year or was it second year. Oh, yeah,
0: we we only we only sold 28 pairs. <laughs> so, yeah, he went and got another job and uh, Oh and, man. So so what does
1: he th- <laughs> We're still what great he friends. Think? Okay, you're still great friends.
0: Oh, we're still great friends. Yeah, yeah, now we we see each other quite often, yeah.
1: <laughs> I bet you he has some regrets of of dropping out at that time.
0: Surprisingly not. I mean, we we were, it was a practical decision. I mean, I he certainly didn't want to go through that three years that I went through. You know? Yeah. I, in, in, there were many times I thought I should quit, but you know, I had those investors tied up in all the product, you know, so I had to try and quit it for them, you know?
1: So was that, I mean, it, was it the outside investors that kept you going? I mean, what were, what were the motivations between say year one and year three?
0: It was trying to stay alive uh, in the summertime because the, the sheepskin buying pattern back then was October, November, December. And so whatever I sold then was usually gone by February or March because I had to pay for the trade shows for the next season. And so it was always a struggle. So, but I can remember one time, this is again how fluky being an entrepreneur is. I was working as a greenskeeper at a golf course in the summertime Mm -hmm. and I'd finally decided that, you know, look, this Uggboot business, number one, they're expensive. So it's a really, you know, difficult thing to buy a lot of inventory because they cost so much. Number two, it's not innate to Californians to buy sheepskin for footwear. Number three, it's seasonal, so it's it's not like I can plow profits back in and keep making money every month. Number four, I, it's you know I got to pay for it up front, then I got to ship it out to all the retailers and wait sixty days to get my money back if I get my money back. So it had all these really bad, and then the other thing was just to sell a pair of size eights, I had to carry from size say five all the way through thirteen because I never knew what size people were going to. Wanted when they came in the store. So all of these elements were really, really bad elements for running a business, and I decided at the end of the, the summer, it was a fall, you know, I was working on the golf course, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to quit the remaining inventory and go out of business. And then it was a really stormy day around October, and I remember getting home after the golf course, and there were like 30 messages on my answering machine from retailers just screaming out for product, you know, Brian, I'll drive down to San Diego and pick it up. I, I need it tomorrow, you know, and mm-hmm. that's when, that's when I realized, okay, I got i I'm at a crossroads here. I can either go out and find more money with enough capital to to pay me to stay alive while mm-hmm. the down, you know, during the down season or get out of business. And I chose to raise money you know, I raised, uh, uh, found another investor who took it to the next level. It, it was on a hairbreadth, you know, of of being, you know, just shutting down. I mean, yeah, that's
1: so fortuitous that you had that. I mean, if it weren't for that retailer demand, you yeah. might have walked away at that point, right? You, you never yeah, know. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. Yeah, I'd already made my mind up to, cl- to shut it down. Yeah.
1: Wow. Okay. So you, you get that demand, you get that outside investment at this point the business is obviously it's growing are you staffing your californian team at this point are you are you a ceo do you hire a a partner do you have a partner on board with you what does the business look like at this stage
0: (laughs) so i couldn't really afford a a, a team as you say i did have people come in and help with the shipping because you know the contain. you know I'd, i'd get you know, the air containers would come in with, you know, three, four, 500 pairs and I'd have to arrange them all and have, have a warehouse guy shipping. But that, that was, you know, I, because I was an accountant, I did my own accounting for the first several years. So I didn't really need a full-time staff. And I think it wasn't until we were doing about, mm, about one and a half million in sales that we had, had a full-time employee doing bookkeeping and do, handling all the accounts. And I was still doing most of the selling, and the second hire was a salesman to take on as, as a commission salesperson, and that was really the beginning. But that was like after five years. So remember those first three that it was still out of my back bedroom.
1: At, at this point, are are you married? Do you have a family or? Not I got yet? married.
0: I got married during that period. Thank God, my my wife was someone who could. Believe in the dreams of this Aussie guy who, mm. who had big dreams but wasn't really providing. it. And you know, to her credit, she she had a great job and she she paid a lot of the bills during the summertime, and that that uh, really made a good team for both of us. Yeah, it was it was about six years before we got a, actually had a a warehouse with an office next to it with full time staff, and and by then we were doing about. $1.5 to $2 million in sales, which is still tiny.
1: You're right. I mean, it, it, it sounds like a lot to, to a layman, but it's still a small business by any definition at $1 to $2 million. Um, yeah. You're probably going full throttle, right? Your time is probably super strapped. You're married. Yeah. Um, yeah. How does your, your, you mentioned your wife. So is she, is she just tolerant of the demands of, of you growing this business?
0: To her credit, she never questioned me. She just, she really believed in me and you know, that, that, that kept us you know, going through all of those tough times. And you, you know, the, the, when you talk about time commitment at a million to 2 million, you're, you're too big to be small and you're mm-hmm. too small to be big. Yep. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. A hundred percent.
0: You can't afford staff to do everything cause you can't, you, you know, you just can't afford it at 2 million. but. The demands require a much much bigger staff than you have, so that's the period where you're working 15-hour day. That's a number everybody throws out. You're working really really long. You you really never stop working, but you you still got time to go to a barbecue or go surfing and stuff. But really, your life is all around running the business, and that's where my wife was really supportive, and we ended up having our first baby during that period. Before you know, we we were now getting I knew that we would have sales next year because our uh, buying, seat, you know, the trade shows were in February, March, and I would know that we've sold. Okay, we sold twenty thousand pairs for delivery in September. So I knew we had a business. If I could just hang in there through the summer, right? So yeah. that that's what kept me going every year. And each year we kept like doubling. But again, each year, every time we doubled, meant we had to find twice as much money to buy twice as much product to ship it out. So the the, the success was actually working against us in a cash flow situation.
1: Were you constantly the one looking to raise more capital or did you have somebody on the team doing that?
0: Well, if I look back and a lot of people ask me, what would you have done different? Mm-hmm. And this is the only area in which I can say I wish I had done things different. And that is, I even though I was an accountant, a public accountant, I didn't understand finance and I would have had someone come in on staff or a consultant or just to just point out look, Brian the bigger you get the bigger hole you're digging for yourself you need to fund this with with million dollars worth of capital to buy products so that you're not paying up front so that you can get your cash flow right you know Mm -hmm. all of these things that financial people can run projections on now and and keep keep in mind Back at this stage, the the first desktop computers hadn't really hit yet, right? Mm. This was like in the '80s where most of the growth was happening, and mm. the first mm. the first PCs hadn't even hit the desks, right? So you weren't running spreadsheets, and I mean, I was running spreadsheets, but they were on thirteen-column paper. So <laughs> that's that's how bad it was. I mean, and I was sophisticated because I had these, you know, five deep pages of, of forecasts of products, styles, colors, sizes, and then financial forecasts based on that. And, and it was like as sophisticated as I could be from an accounting viewpoint, but there was no computer programs. There was no business plan programs. There was no how to raise capital programs. It was like, this is in the wild, wild West of, of uh, you know, accounting. So, you know, it, it it, that's what took up so much time before the internet so
1: are you are you running around talking to banks trying to get debt financing are you running around just pitching to investors and showing them these sheets of paper with projections on it it
0: it was both the the banks god love them you know I, i i hated banks then i haven't changed my mind much since (laughs) <laughs> was, was hey, Brian, you know, well, good, you had a good season, but UGG is a fad, you won't be around next season, mm. right? Three, four years in a row, the same answer. Uh, it's a fad, it won't be around. The investment banks, though, were much more savvy. They were more worried about the seasonality mm-hmm. and what happens if it's a, a, a warm season or what happens if, you know it is a fad that they were a little more astute about their objections, and they never invested. So I was always looking for friends and family, or not not the family. i was I was way past family. I was looking for business contacts who were more like angel investors who who believed in me and would take a punt on me. Mm-hmm. and uh, and I was always able to find them, even though it was always late. I, I usually had to be, in august saying i've got five thousand pairs to deliver next week i need money and that was usually the point when they came in so very it's so difficult. funny
1: yeah yeah and it's it's funny that you mentioned that i don't I don't think much has changed you know i think we've come a long way in terms of technology but the mindset of the vc is um, somewhat similar in the sense that if you ask a vc what they're investing in the business planner or the person i think half of them maybe more than half will say they first invest in the entrepreneur
0: that's absolutely hundred percent true yeah yeah i in fact i last what two weeks ago I was sitting in an angel investment pitch tank, you know, mm-hmm. and out of four or five presenters you know they all they all left the room when we were discussing them, and the last guy had the least professional presentation, but everybody loved him because they said, this guy is so real, I could back this guy he he didn't bullshit us, he didn't Come up with the hockey stick forecasts. He told us all the problems. I believe this guy. I would invest in him. And that was a stark, you know contrast to all the other slick presentations,
1: yeah, I, I think there's you know there's there's so much truth in in just being authentic versus trying to create this kind of pie in the sky opportunity that everybody just sees right through. yeah, you, you know you mentioned the the lesson learned about the accelerated growth and the cash and looking back probably think of a few times that you wish you had a cfo uh helping you with this stuff
0: Absolutely. At, what,
1: at what stage do you think it makes sense if you could create a state or if you could pinpoint some sort of a range uh at what stage of a business do you think it makes sense for a company to look at bringing on a full-time cfo
0: okay well two two considerations one is uh Financial, uh, how much do they cost and and does the cash flow afford it? That's usually in a business that's running, you know, depending on profitability to maybe one to two million uh, is a good time. Mm-hmm. But that's if it's a 12 months of the, of the year cash flow. My problem was I had a three month cash flow, so I couldn't, no, no good accountant was going to give up his job and come with me for three months. And then be back on the market again. So but but I'm talking to to, to you and your audience that may be in a 12-month business. Um, in fact, I have one client now, she's she's got a very profitable business selling Facebook, and uh, and she's at about two million, or your projections going out to about two million. Uh, and we're just now deciding should we bring on a full-time accountant for her? But mm-hmm. the the good thing is now that with the uh, internet and QuickBooks and all of these things, you can outsource accounting work and be almost as, as, as functional as having your own in-house accountant.
1: Okay, so where was UGG at its maturest state in terms of sales? So you, you mentioned 1.2, 1 to 2 million in that five to seven year mark. Where was, yeah. the most, where was the peak for the company?
0: Well, I built it up to 15 million in sales. Uh, that was in the mid '90s, and it looked like I was going to have a like we we'd been to the Priest shows uh, in January and February um, in California, and it looked like we were going to have a $20 million season coming up. And I knew that I was not going to be able to finance, I didn't have enough capital. My current partners didn't have the ability to finance a $20 million you know jump. And so I knew I was in in you know I was, I, was, I knew I was going to be looking for another investor to buy these guys out and uh, be able to finance the next season, and you know you talk about how the universe works. When I was selling boots out of the back of my van in Malibu, mm-hmm. there was another guy a couple of you know parking spaces up who was always selling these triple decker sandals. They were like thongs you know and they were neoprene uh, sandals and he called those things deckers triple deckers right and so over the years uh, you know five ten fifteen years we would always cross paths on the road and our businesses were building and building and building and we, we would joke to each other you know, his name was Doug Otto and I hey Doug you should buy my business and he, he'd go Oh, uh, how much? And I said, well, you can't afford it anyway. You know, so we, we would just banter back and forth all the time. But time marched on and he took on a brand called Tiva Sandals. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and he took his company public on Tiva. And I knew that, you know, this year when I had the, you know, looking at a $20 million sales season, I knew that he had just taken his company public and he had 25, 30 million in cash. And I was in the baggage claim area at Atlanta Airport. We were going to a, a thing called the Super Show in Atlanta. It was a huge sporting goods show. And I looked up the other end of the baggage claim and I saw Doug and I just got covered in goosebumps again, you know. And, and these goosebumps happen to me every time some monumental change is happening in my life. It's it's, it's uncanny. It was like Pink Floyd when I got the goosebumps there, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got these goosebumps, and I went, Oh my God, it's perfect. He's got a, you know he's got twenty million bucks in the bank. he's his company dies every winter. my my company dies every summer, mm. right? And I yeah. walked up, I walked up to him, and i I said, "Doug, if ever we're going to do this now is the time, you know, and we just high- fived, and we had the accountants talking to each other that afternoon. And so that was how it was like me being able to take a public without having to go public. You know, we just cashed out. It was un- and it worked out fantastic for Doug.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's so funny. There's something about Doug's in your life, right? Your first business partner's Doug.
0: Yeah, I never thought of that. That's now, funny.
1: now years later. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's
1: <laughs> you funny. See another Doug in in, in the airport. Um, that's that's such an interesting story, and it's funny. They they, they say like the the universe kind of conspires to help you reach your goals in a weird way. It it's sounds like that, uh, yeah. That very that's, apropos. That's,
0: that saying is so universal. You know, it was yeah. just like the universe conspired to find me my first investor through my roommate. You know, and and you know, the, yeah. That 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 saying is. Do Do you mind if I segue a little bit on and and explain the, how that works?
1: No, we've got time. I'd love to hear that.
0: Okay. Okay. Here's my take on that that universal theory is that the universe out there is perfect. Everything that you could possibly want already exists. Right? But if you're not on a path, you're never gonna see it. So I'll ask you the question: when's the last time you saw an advertisement for a refrigerator? Do, do I, you can't, I can't recall, no. Okay. If you needed to buy a refrigerator next weekend, guess what would come into your vision? Everything, you'd see it on TV, you'd see yeah. it in, in newspapers, you'd see it online, and suddenly refrigerators are everywhere. And that's a real simple theory of, of how if you, everything's out there that you could possibly need. If you're an entrepreneur and you're wondering, should I start? I don't really know enough about it, da 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 da, da. You can think of all the objections, but the minute you start, things will start, you'll start to recognize, oh, I could use that. Oh, that's in line with what I want to do. Oh, look at that. And suddenly the universe starts bringing to you. It doesn't bring it to you. It's always there, but you start noticing things that you can use to get to your goal. Anyway, that's how I explain the, the universal principle. It's if, if you don't start, You'll never get outside of the, your house.
1: What does life look like today for you?
0: Well, I've developed a really good speaking business and I love speaking to entrepreneurial groups and business groups, mm-hmm. uh, especially women's groups, uh, because of the women business people are the most dynamic group in the whole, you know, world right now. So I you know, I have a website called Brian Smithspeaker.com. It's B-R-I-A-N, Smithspeaker.com. And I've got a lot of stuff out there about my uh, speaking business, but I, that I wrote a book called *The Birth of a Brand*, which mm-hmm. is on Amazon and it's also on my website. But Amazon's good. But *The Birth of a Brand* pretty much lays out all of my philosophies and spirituality and, and business lessons learned from building the UG business. And it's a—it's sort of like a roadmap for entrepreneurs. And I've got tremendous really good responses from everybody who reads it you know they say it's like a page turner cuz it's not it's not stuff you're going to learn from business college or you know grad, you know grad school you know courses this is boots on the ground wisdom on on what it's really like you know starting and running a business especially when you're undercapitalized and how to how to hang in there and make it work it's very very inspirational
1: yeah i'm i'm definitely going to check it out after we hang up and and in terms of where you call home, is it still California today?
0: Yeah, I've lived in Encinitas, California, for you know over thirty years now. It's it's almost like Australia. I'm looking out the window here. There's nothing but eucalyptus trees, and you know the beaches down there, and everyone's wearing shorts. It's so Australian. It's amazing.
1: It sounds like uh, a very rich and fulfilling life. It, it's a real pleasure to meet you and to talk to you. This is been an incredibly insightful and valuable one hour for me. Okay, Brian, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Electric acid Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr.
0: Oh, I got this no, it's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. daniel